like even further than we were before <laughs> we have a theme song we've leveled up it's only been two years <laughs> <laughs> you'll never know if you're just listening for the yes. first time <laughs> we're on episode like 40 something and we now have a theme song yes yes i guess um, i guess we'll go through and like put it on all the other episodes too yeah <laughs> yeah well i figure we can do that or i, I can help with that um i guess when this airs but <clears throat> Yeah, we, when this airs, <laughs> we finally have a theme song courtesy of moi. I'm now a DJ. Yes, with the yeah, help. I, <laughs> I was gonna say with the help of Cat, she found um, you found the strings, right? Hell and yeah. then yeah, we were looking at the Hell yeah. the bass. So yeah, I hope uh, I hope you guys enjoy that. Now we won't just be starting episodes like we'll randomly. still be awkward as fuck, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> the awkwardness will not go anywhere. The awkwardness is uh, here forever a feature yeah, of yeah. this podcast so <laughs> it's part of the um what's it called the template i don't know it's just designed that way yeah <laughs> like we're awkward people, we're just made so. that way <laughs> exactly like whenever whoever the powers that be decided to come together and make rachel and kat they were like <laughs> they made us together some <laughs> sarcasm and a little bit of nerdiness and we'll a do... little bit of awkward oh, oh no, no it's <laughs> of awkwardness son of a bitch they're gonna be so weird <laughs> so weird <laughs> but you know what weird finds weird and yeah that's what we're here for happy new year oh yeah it's the new year it is the new year <laughs> what day is it i don't even know. I don't even know it's january so when we are recording this it will be january 15th um it will be airing Sometime in February. End of January, early February. We are, I mean, when, by the time you hear this, it'll be done. But yeah, Kat has some big stuff coming up. So we're in us for work. Everyone fuck the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fuck it in Phoenix because yeah. that's what. Is... We'll just fuck it in general. I hate sports, mm. but we'll get into that later. <laughs> it's, it's not just the Super Bowl, though. There's a bunch of other stuff going on, right? That's bringing yeah. a bunch of people to town. Yeah, it's like yeah. the Open and the... Barry Jackson Listen, car show don't come and there's here. like a horse show and don't I'm like come Stop. here okay it's it's yeah I mean right now it's like decent, it's cold <laughs> it's nice but like it's hot there's yeah. scorpions there's giant sewer roaches that will fly like yeah. you don't want to come here you don't okay? want to do it just don't <laughs> oh my god the prices this is not anything about Super Bowl but the, but the prices around town holy shit just to stay at a hotel and oh stuff. god yeah oh god <laughs> I'm like we better make money we better use it for good things <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, It'll be want. great for the it's local fine. economy. But yeah. Yeah. But we'll all be happy when it's over. Anyway, this <laughs> is Difficult Damsel. Yeah. <laughs> wow. With a take my line. I'm so sorry. Da -da. Would you like to do it again? No. <laughs> okay, good. Because I wasn't going to. Whoa. <laughs> Who are I'm you? Kat. Okay. I'm Rachel. Uh, Hi. Hi. This is a podcast about badass women from history and problematic women from history. Nah, nah, nah. This woman we're going to cover, um, it's going to be the start of a little series. Um, this will be, we're, we're going to go back about a thousand years in time. 
We are getting in our rewind time machine. In our rewind time <laughs> machine. Um, and we are covering the period of the Crusades. So yeah. this required a little bit of research on my part. Woo! And I will do a brief rundown of what the heck the Crusades are. Again, I'm not like an actual historian, so I'm going to, it's going to be yeah, very, guys, this like, is an amateur podcast. We are very clear on that. But this will be exciting. Um, what I've kind of learned in doing my mm-hmm. research is that due to just the fact that men were constantly at war, um, not only with, you know, the other religions in the area, but often within themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. People just like fighting. <laughs> well, I mean, it's because the French came. I mean, it's a lot of reasons, but yes. <laughs> like, the French can never not fight themselves. Sorry if you're French. <laughs> um, but what I've learned is because men kept going off to war, they kept dying in war. And then this created this unique environment where women were able to, like, truly come up into roles of leadership um, that you really didn't see anywhere else in the world at the time. Heck yeah. So, anyway... Let's start off with making sure this is recording. It is. Okay. <laughs> wow. Um, we are also at my place recording, so yeah. we get to geek out over my babies. The babies. The babies. The butters. And the alley. The alley is hiding because we've got the uh, screen door open, and even though she thinks she's like a big badass cat, she gets scared and she's by She's a everything. big cat. She is a big cat. And she's very intimidating <laughs> when she wants to be, but, like, she's also a Does it cat. count when she's intimidating towards Butters, who's scared of literally everything? Look, but he's sitting over there. He's having such a good time. He's having a grand old time because the door is open. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So, anyway, let's we're going to start with some historical context. Woo. So, in 1111, oh. angel numbers, <laughs> Henry V, a.k.a. Empress Matilda's first husband... Of Germany uh, travels to Rome and is crowned the Holy Roman Emperor. Wait, Henry V of Germany? Yes. Okay. Interesting. He was probably called like Henri. Henri. <laughs> or Henri or something ridiculous. <laughs> In 1119, the Knights Templar are founded to protect Christian pilgrims in Jerusalem. In 1120, William Adeline dies during the White Ship disaster, depriving King Henry I of England of a legitimate male heir. He then names his daughter, Empress Matilda, as heir to the throne of England and has his English lords pledge oaths of loyalty to her. Hell yeah. In 1128, the Kingdom of Portugal gains independence from the Kingdom of Leon. In 1135 to 1154, this marks the period of English history known as the Anarchy, where King Stephen of Blois (laughs) and Matilda face off against one another for control of the English throne. Uh, You can go listen to the Empress Matilda episode. It is episode two to find out. all. Isn't that crazy? That's adorable. We've come full circle. In 1137, King Louis VII of France marries Eleanor of Aquitaine. Hell yeah! In 1144, the crusader state of Edessa falls to the Muslim warrior prince Adebeg Zengi. The second crusade is launched a year later in response to the fall of Edessa. In 1154, Henry II, a.k.a. Empress Matilda's son and Eleanor of Aquitaine's second husband, is crowned the King of England. In 1162, Genghis Khan is born in present-day Mongolia. It's Genghis Khan. I'm just kidding. Genghis. <laughs> is it Genghis? I think it is. I was, I'm like, I hope not, because I've been I saying it wrong. Like, what are they doing outside? I don't know. It sounds like someone's whipping something, and it sounds like a great time. Oh. <laughs> 
well, come on over here then. Come over here. We'll we are in the together. right time period for everything. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, man. So I'm going to give you a brief history lesson on the start of the Crusades. Oh, I was like, did you not just do that? <laughs> like a legitimate one. You guys are going to get another, <laughs> an additional oh my God. historical context. 2.0. Okay. So I've been a little hesitant to cover the next couple of women because they came to power around the time of the first, second, and third crusades. Similar to the wars of religion that plagued Europe in the 16th century, the crusades have a blend of political and religious motivations that can still be felt in the area of the world known as the Levant to this day. What we need to know is this, who were the powers at play and what region are we in? So the region is basically where the Crusader states existed. And again, it's in the area known as the Levant, which was a fertile strip of land that begins in modern day eastern Turkey and western Syria and spreads along the coast of Syria and modern day Israel slash Palestine. So this is a we have the maps, but this is kind of what you're looking at. So you have the county of Edessa at the top of the crusader states the principality of antioch the county of tripoli and the crown jewel of all the crusader states the kingdom of jerusalem in addition to jerusalem the kingdom of jerusalem consisted of the major cities of beirut tyr acre jaffa and gaza jerusalem itself was considered an incredibly holy site for the three major religions of the area judaism islam and christianity hence the reason it was constantly fought over. Before the First Crusade, this area was ruled by Islamic leaders since about the 7th century. By the end of the 11th century, a new influx of Frankish lords and soldiers came into the area after having been whipped into a religious fury by Pope Urban II. Going forward, when you hear me say Outremer, I'm talking about the collective city-states of Edessa, Antioch, Tripoli, and Jerusalem. So you're going to think of it as like, it's not a country, but like, but like we of. gave it a name. Yeah. <laughs> These four are basically allied. It's like the, the Germanic or the Celtic tribes where they, they aligned when they needed to, but yeah, other than that, they're like, Mm-mm. and basically, <laughs> <We're not friends. laughs> basically Antioch, Tripoli and Edessa, they, they're ruled by either like a count or a prince, depending on that's why you had like the principality of Antioch. Yeah. It's a prince there. Um, but they're basically kind of subservient to Jerusalem. Okay. So whoever is the king in Jerusalem kind of oversees everything. Okay. During this period of the Crusades, Christians held the four Crusader states, while Muslim leaders controlled the surrounding territories of Aleppo, Damascus, and Egypt. And just a little bit of religious context. Following the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, Roman Christianity were split into two different factions— The remnants of the Western Roman Empire saw the rise of Rome and Roman Catholicism, led by the Pope. Over in the East, the Eastern Roman Empire continued in the form of the Byzantine Empire. And the capital of the Byzantine Empire was Constantinople, a city in modern-day Turkey that sits on the eastern border of Europe, the western border of the Middle East, flanked by the Black Sea to the north and the Mediterranean Sea to the south. So when you look at Constantinople, it's literally this little dot that's like surrounded by water and then two thin strips of land that lead into the continent. Yes. Why it was such a like big city. Yeah. 
because it's easily defendable. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was very hard to take it. Constantinople is the largest city in the Mediterranean at this point, consisting of approximately 600,000 Greek citizens. Its proximity to the Middle East meant that tensions were always high. Constantinople also served as the head of the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church. Despite both having their origins in early Christianity, the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church and the Roman Catholic Church were not always aligned politically or religiously. But any time one or the other needed an excuse to invade the Levant and launch a crusade, they managed to find common cause. <laughs> it's always great. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Islam has emerged as the newest and youngest of the monotheistic religions, meaning worshiping one god. Yeah. And has been spreading from Arabia across the Middle East and into northern Africa and southern Spain. Before the First Crusade was launched, Islamic rulers reigned in the Levant. Although there were many stories of Islamic rulers mistreating the people in the area and harassing pilgrims, most of the rulers were no better or worse than the existing European monarchs, with various flavors of ruthlessness and insanity existing from one ruler to the next. <laughs> yeah, because we're all awful. Par for the cause, <clears throat> yeah. But for the most part, Islamic rulers tolerated Christian and Jewish pilgrims and allowed them to travel on pilgrimage to Jerusalem unharmed. Hmm. So why is... Sorry if you already said this, but like, what, what makes Jerusalem so holy? Basically, each of the three religions have their origins in the city. So okay. um, between Judaism and Christianity... Well, yes, Christianity... Jesus is born in Bethlehem, which yeah. is in the area of Jerusalem. Um, Christianity has, or Christianity, yeah, uh, Judaism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, because Judaism, <laughs> Jesus doesn't really factor in as much. Um, but again, they have their own holy sites mm -hmm. within Jerusalem. And then um, same with Islam has their own islam owned it <laughs> like well huh. no because islam is the newer religion but yeah. you know there were empires that came before that were in the area you have the persian empire which was constantly fighting with the roman empire all in this area so you've just got it's just the site that these three religions that's kind of the irony is they fight each other but they all they all have ties to it. They all have ties to this city. So when you actually go to Jerusalem, it, it depends on what part of the city you're in, but it has different um, like cultural influences yeah. too. I just remember so. my grandpa was very into the Catholic church and that was one of the places he wanted to go. And I was like, but why? <laughs> um, probably because of like the wall of David mm -hmm. and then just knowing oh, yeah. that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. He was a, he was a true believer. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> back to this story. <laughs> Um, on November 27, 1095, everything kind of changes when Pope Urban II made what would perhaps become the most fateful and influential speech of the Middle Ages. And in it, he said this, Under Jesus Christ, our leader, may you struggle for your Jerusalem. In Christian battle line, that most invincible line, even more successful than did the sons of Jacob the Old, struggle that you may assail and drive out the Turks, more execrable than the Jebusites who are in this land, and may you deem it a beautiful thing to die for Christ in that city in which he died for us. It's disgusting. <laughs> Absolutely awful. <laughs> when Pope Urban II made this speech, it was amidst a cataclysm within the Roman Catholic Church itself. 
At the time, there had been a lot of infighting within the Christian nations themselves of Europe and an anti-pope that also claimed more legitimacy over the throne of St. Peter than Pope Urban himself. So this was a literal Hail Mary from the Pope being like, I need backing and power behind me. So everyone, look, we come together. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we come together to go fight other people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we are going to come together to fight a different slash common enemy. <laughs> yes. Precisely. God, you so nailed stupid. it on the head. That's so stupid. It gets worse. Mm. So... <laughs> By launching the First Crusade, Pope Urban II attained more power for himself by uniting the Christian nations under the banner of a singular holy cause. The blood red banner. <laughs> Reclaim the holy lands of the Levant from the so-called infidels of the East. Those who fought in the Crusade would have all past sins forgiven. The promise of land, wealth, and glory was an equally motivating factor. And so, the region soon saw an influx of largely Frankish forces invading their lands, depleting towns and farmsteads of food, and catapulting the region into a perpetual state of unrest. We all wonder why our kids can't share. <sighs> Maybe it's because they're I mean, watching you not share. <laughs> really think about this, too. Like, taking all of the fighting aside, when you're traveling through these small towns, like, you're coming to an inn with you know, maybe a small campaign of soldiers, like, great, cool, that's money in our pockets. But if you're taking an entire army through, yeah, you are depleting their food sources. Yeah. yeah. And they're probably not being super nice to everyone around them. <laughs> no, not at all. Especially if, you know, the promise of absolving you of your sins, that meant a lot of criminals ended up as part of the mm -hmm. Crusades. So. Yeah, but you don't have to be a criminal to be a terrible person at wartime. <laughs> that is fair. <laughs> The men who became the heroes of the First Crusade were the men who conquered Edessa, Antioch, Tripoli, and Jerusalem. These men would often marry the daughters of powerful local kingdoms to cement control over the areas they conquered. And this is where we finally come to the beginning of our current difficult damsel's story. Her name is Melisande, and she would go on to become the first queen regnant of Jerusalem. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! So I assume when we marry these daughters of... Jerusalem that we're trying to convert these daughters to whatever our religion is? Mm -hmm. No. Oh, well, you'll that's a... You'll find out. Okay. You'll find out. Okay. <laughs> that's silver lining for this whole story. <laughs> um, it It's interesting. So, and we're actually going to talk about that. So, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> but before that, so Melisande was born in 1105 in the county of Edessa to King Baldwin II of Jerusalem and the Armenian princess Morphia of Melitene. Armenian. So at the time, Baldwin is not the king of Jerusalem. He will become the king of Jerusalem. We'll get there. He is um, actually the count of Edessa. Oh, excuse me, Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> So here we go. The marriage between Baldwin and Morphia had been a political match to help settle the region of Edessa after Baldwin made a name for himself by conquering the region and installing himself as its ruling leader. You can't just do that. He did. I mean, you can, <laughs> but you can't. All of the first crusader heroes did. Ugh. Now, chroniclers of the time were predominantly men. Love predictably of like the misogynistic you, you sort saying that like this is this is normal well so here's where it gets interesting um they very rarely saw fit to record anything related to the women of the time of course so anytime morphia is named it was only ever to mention her incredibly large dowry oh my god on top of that and we'll get to some of it later uh so one of our main sources of this time period is william of Tyr. 
he describes the men of this period in great detail. He'll be like, that guy had beautiful, luxurious golden curls. That guy had calluses on his calves. Um, what the fuck is he, he doing? <laughs> he never once any of the women of this period. And then there was the woman. That's yeah, <laughs> we don't we don't know what they look like. Oh he, my god, there's no descriptions of any of them. Jesus Christ. And when we get to talking about Melisande, um, I'll explain kind of like we have an idea what she looks like, but yeah. it's because of her family. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the marriage to Morphia was incredibly strategic and necessary. As a local princess, she was instrumental in helping to ensure the status quo would still be maintained in some form. Um. The other thing about her is Baldwin is Roman Catholic, but Morphia is, um, even though she's Armenian, she's of the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church. Okay. So she's kind of of the flavor of Christianity that's more prevalent in this area. I'm really upset no one can see your hand movements right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, which which is important to, to keep Christianity established, but it's also like that flavor of Christianity. Yeah. So... She didn't yeah. have to convert. It was very important that, that she was that flavor. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> she was a vanilla bean Christianity. <laughs> anyway, I actually like Morphia. She's cool. Hell yeah. Even more unique to this period, the marriage between Baldwin and Morphia appears to have been a devoted partnership by medieval standards. Baldwin would keep Morphia at his side even after she failed to give him a male heir. Oh, stop it. <laughs> Looking at you, Henry VIII. Yeah, asshole. He's not murdering all his wives just for funsies. He's not. So Morphia would end up giving Baldwin four daughters instead, three of whom would go on to become formidable female leaders. Like many medieval princes of the time, Baldwin was eager to expand and secure his territory, which meant he was constantly on campaign. Known for occasionally being reckless, Baldwin was habitually captured by the enemy <laughs> and held as a hostage. Oh, no. Melisande was the first daughter born to Baldwin and Morphia, and her birth happened to occur during one of these famed imprisonments. <laughs> Morphia was thus left to raise her infant daughter while the status of control over Edessa was in limbo with its count imprisoned by enemy forces. They were going to say she was forced to raise her daughter on her own as opposed to normal. <laughs> When the men are not involved. <laughs> the point is she's raising a child and, and, running, and running, yeah, running the county of Odessa. Like trying to, it's it's very possible somebody will come in in her oh, husband's yeah. absence and take it. She's like, I will fight you. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> this was the legacy that Melisande inherited from the moment she came into the world. She was the daughter of a powerful but hot-headed crusader prince and an Armenian princess left to manage a kingdom anytime her husband was absent. Melisande was thus raised in a unique environment where female leadership had a unique opportunity to blossom, as many of the fathers and sons of the region were constantly away on campaign. We are joined by Butters, so Butters. I'm like freaking out because he's adorable. I apologize, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the early years of Melisande's life were marked by much tension as her father continually found himself on campaign, fending off raids, securing his borders, captured, waging daring escapes, and being captured again. <laughs> Are they daring escapes, or is it just another Tuesday? <laughs> well, uh, some of them were pretty daring. Yes. I'm not going to go into that one in detail. Do you think he just likes getting captured so he can like one-up the, the last Possibly. escape attempt? I there there is a story worth telling, but I'm going to save it for a different daughter of theirs. Okay. Um. Spoiler alert: we're covering another daughter. <laughs> we are. 
at one point, um, when Baldwin is captured, he's captured for a while, and both he and Morthia have to agree to exchange their youngest daughter, Yvette, as a hostage no. in place of Baldwin to free him from imprisonment. No! Yeah. No! She is five. You're... Uh, mm -hmm. You don't have the chance of getting raped... Well, I guess your chances of getting raped in jail are very slim as a male. But if you send your five-year-old daughter, like, ugh. So to this day, um, historians have speculated over what exactly happened to her. Why she, would you even consider that? Well, like, ugh. Yvette's going to come back in our story. Yes. Um, now I hate Balder. Baldwin. <laughs> Balder. <laughs> this, is not, this is not a Norse story. <laughs> so Melisande's youngest sister remained a hostage for a year before enough money could be That's raised terrible. to buy her freedom. Why would you not just stay in jail for a year? But the experience left a lasting impression on the young girl. Oh, shit. All of Melisande's siblings would go on to make powerful marriage alliances and become important figures in the politics of the Outremer regions, save for Yvette, who would end up joining a convent. Her story Ugh. has a happy ending, and we will come okay, back good, to it. But still, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was very much... You remember when, I want to say, Henry... No, it was Francis the first. Yeah, and he exchanged his two kids. Yeah. But he did it willingly because he didn't care and he's a horrible person. And you remember how he like reneged on the deal he made because he thought no. he could get a, a one up on the Spanish? Baldwin did the same thing. Fucking I hate men. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> so much. Anyway. Ugh. <laughs> we'll come back to Yvette. Um, she does have a happier ending. When Baldwin's cousin, the king of Jerusalem, died without issue. The kingdom of Jerusalem passed along to Baldwin, and he became Baldwin II of Jerusalem. When you say died without issue. Like... <laughs> he, he had no children. Okay. I was like, it's very that's how they. That's how they say it, like, in the Chronicles. His death was easy. There were no issues. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what my head went to. Oh my good there, to know. There probably were issues, but he had no children to pass along. I've got that now. Yep. <laughs> Guess what his name was? Don't you dare say Baldwin. It was Baldwin. Stop it. <laughs> it's not. Those aren't the only two Baldwins in this story. You need to stop immediately. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, God. During Baldwin II's coronation stop. of Jerusalem, he ensured that Morphia was crowned right alongside him, which served as another sign of her importance to him. Oh, yeah. After Baldwin became king of Jerusalem, several of his advisors advised him to divorce <laughs> Morphia and take on a new, younger wife um, that might be able to give him a male heir. Kindly fuck off. He's got like four daughters. It's he fine. he basically told them to kindly fuck off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good, he good. Re he refuses. He's not Henry VIII. Good. Great. He actually like loves his wife. I don't know if he's any better though, because he gave his five-year-old <laughs> daughter fair. in place of that is, him. That is fair. <laughs> Do you think Morphe was mad about it, or do you think she like went like? I mean, obviously she went along with it. So like... the the book I'm reading does talk about it, and yeah, it does seem like she was upset about it, but she also knew she didn't really have any other option. Yeah. So she's like, "I dare you to but... take a second wife, asshole. <laughs> see how the, long you live." <laughs> the male chroniclers of the time didn't really see fit to record her reaction. That's fair. So yeah, that's fair. We can only kind of assume based on like what happens with their relationship later. Yeah. Like she's just got internal rage. She's gonna come out. It's gonna make me so happy. <laughs> Further evidence of Baldwin's regard for Morphia came after she died. Twenty-five years of marriage had failed to produce a male heir, so Baldwin would have been in his right and even expected to remarry so that he might produce said male heir. Um, but he ends up refusing to marry. 
good. It's one point for him. It is the one point for him. <laughs> With no male heirs in sight, Baldwin put the fate of his legacy squarely on the shoulders of his four daughters. As Melisande was the eldest, she was poised to inherit the kingdom of Jerusalem after her father. Now, Melisande had been 13 years old when her mother and father were crowned as king and queen of Jerusalem, and she herself was recognized as the heir to the throne. Hell yeah. Does this start to remind you of a certain story we watched last year on HBO? House of the Dragon. Oh, shit, yeah. So, <laughs> I'm like thinking, I'm like, the white queen, like what? <laughs> like, I'm thinking that line. Yes. So, basically, <laughs> Viserys should have, like, taken notes from Baldwin's book. Because yeah. he's going to set up Melisande... <sighs> The way you should. should successfully you, take over. Exactly. Baldwin eventually took his daughter's succession very seriously, as not long after naming her as the heir, Melisande was, Melisande was invited to join council meetings and lend her signature to charters issued by her father to help establish her legitimacy among the nobles. You mean you don't just keep her as a fucking cupbearer when you no. name her fucking heir? Great. Yeah, you cool. gotta, like, invite her. Yeah, and, like, how weird. Her how weird. Yeah. <laughs> and when she has good ideas, um, use them. <laughs> Now, despite being clearly designated as the heir, Melisande found herself in a unique position. No law had been established yet to designate an official rule of succession. Baldwin could say that he wanted Melisande to rule all he wanted, but there was no legal precedent to protect her succession. The ruler of Jerusalem was also expected to be competent both politically and from a military standpoint as well. Jerusalem was constantly fending off threat from outlier tribes and domestic unrest internally. The ruler of Jerusalem would be expected to command the military, don armor, and possess the physical prowess to fight in battle. These were very much warrior kings. Yeah. Melisande was being groomed to handle the political nuances of rule, but she would never be expected or allowed to partake in military combat herself. Because again, misogyny. Yeah. So it becomes imperative that Baldwin find his eldest daughter a husband. <laughs> what? What's wrong? <laughs> oh, hi, butters. Butters. He's like, I'll be her husband. I will do it. I volunteer as tribute. Hey. Melisande could not marry just any old rando either. Sorry, butters, you're out. <laughs> He would have to be a strong enough personality to maintain the respect of the local barons, have an aptitude for military command, and hopefully be willing to work with Melisande herself and accept joint rule with his wife. The choice of a husband was thus completely taken out of Melisande's hands. <laughs> her father and his counselors... I mean, when was it ever in her hands, though, let's be honest. <laughs> her father and his counselors, known as the Hot Corps, endeavored to seek out a husband for her in an ironic role reversal that searched for a suitable groom amongst a list of choice Western European bachelors. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> the lucky man chosen for Melisande was a man by the name of Folk, the Count of Anjou. He was notably much older than Melisande and less attractive. <laughs> Aww. I mean, aren't they always much older and much less attractive? But the chroniclers took care to actually write that down oh poor buddy <laughs> but most importantly he was french with military experience <laughs> and would bring along with him a fresh retinue of frankish troops to replenish baldwin's forces in jerusalem to secure his hand in marriage baldwin and his council drafted a new treaty that suggested folk would inherit all the power currently held by baldwin upon his death 
This new treaty kind of pushed Melisande off to the side. Yeah. And the terms were said to have been influenced in large part because of Baldwin's barons. So mm. <laughs> our recording stopped again. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things you mentioned was basically like why Baldwin would let that happen. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he, he didn't. He was kind of blindsided by it, but he still has to like, you still have to keep your nobles happy. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we're not yeah. done with it. So I promise you, he will get a few points back. <laughs> Melisande and Folk were married in Jerusalem on June 2nd, 1129. Melisande was 24, and Folk is around the age of 40. I mean, that's not terribly older it's than her. Still, it's 20 years. It's like 15, 16. Yeah. Still. I was rounding up, but okay. If you want to get specific. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> As would be expected, all the nobles of Jerusalem were in attendance, along with a crowd that comprised of Muslims and Christians both. Melisande was dressed in a gown of golden silk that would have likely had gemstones embroidered in the bodice, and she would have led a procession of the leading female nobles of Jerusalem. A visual account from Ibn Jabir, a Muslim writer that traveled from the region of Andalusia in southern Spain all the way to Jerusalem to witness the wedding, wrote the following. She was most elegantly garbed in a beautiful dress from which trailed a long train of golden silk. On her head, she wore a gold diadem covered by a net of woven gold, and on her breast was a like arrangement. Proud was she in her ornaments and dress, walking with little steps of half a span like a dove, or in a manner of a wisp of a cloud. God protect us from the seduction of a sight. I just, the, the weak ass bitch is what comes to mind for me. <laughs> She's waddling seductively. God help us from the woman walking down the aisle. How dare she walk in such a uh, manner that makes my dick go wee. <laughs> oh, oh, <God. laughs> fun fact about so Melisande. Ridiculous. Fun fact about Melisande's new husband. He was the father-in-law to Empress Matilda, the then heiress to the English throne. Hell yeah. Again, go listen to episode two of Difficult Damsel. Yeah, I'm so sorry in advance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We are babies then. <laughs> I listened to some of those episodes recently and I was like, we've come a long way. Yeah, we definitely found our flow. <laughs> the question of inheritance for Melisande and Matilda was a parallel experience and challenge for both women. It's been suggested by some that Baldwin modeled his tactic of securing Melisande as his heir after Henry I's recognition of matilda as his heir in england some people do it right <laughs> yes the irony would be that matilda would have a harder time claiming her inheritance yeah because i feel like the englishmen are like worse misogynist than everyone yeah. else like they take the trophy of well, misogyny she also had um the thing that worked against her she wasn't in england when her father died so proximity <laughs> played a part, which, you know, doesn't happen to Melisande, spoiler yeah. alert. So. Now the marriage between Melisande and Folk proved fruitful, as Melisande gave birth to a baby boy a year later. And this baby boy would be named... Don't do it. It's already been done. I know, but you can't do it to me now. <laughs> like, you can't. You have, you have a chance to not do it again. Baldwin! No! <laughs> they have five names, okay? Oh. Five names to choose from. Now what? Start spelling them backwards, damn it. <laughs> With the birth of a son, Melisande had all but secured her and her husband's positions as heir to the throne of Jerusalem by producing a direct male heir in line to the throne. Hell yeah. 
after baby Baldwin was born, adult Baldwin <laughs> held a coronation ceremony for Folk, Melisande, and baby Baldwin. It's likely this was done to help reaffirm Melisande's position as his heir by formally acknowledging and crowning her alongside her husband and son in public. Melisande's father also designated Melisande as the singular guardian of her son, further tying her to her son in case Folk attempted to set her aside after her father died. Don't freaking try it, Folk. It was convenient timing. Less than a year after the birth of baby Baldwin, Melisande's father fell ill. Oh no. While on his deathbed, Baldwin summoned Melisande and Folk to his bedside and had a new will drafted. Oh no. In this new will, the dying king declared that the kingdom of Jerusalem would be passed to Folk, Melisande, and their infant son in equal parts. Oh wow, okay. This time, the barons were not around to circumvent Baldwin's wishes to bestow equal authority on Folk and Melisande both. And when Baldwin II died, the position of female rulership in the medieval Middle East and the Kingdom of Jerusalem was forever altered. Oh, shit. <laughs> if Folk had any issue with sharing power with his wife and baby, he kept it to himself. To do otherwise would have been both disrespectful and tacky with yeah. the king freshly dead in his bed. I mean, that has not stopped many before. <laughs> <laughs> that they was... literally start their machinations as before they're dying. they die. <laughs> but like Baldwin had enough sense to understand that. So he was like, uh-uh, no, uh -uh, no, honey. give me some paper. Okay. Here's my stamp. Yeah. My daughter will pass me on the throne. Okay. Yeah. Thank you and bye. <laughs> Thank you and bye. No question. Again, this series, you could have taken a lesson from could him. Could have learned. <laughs> Now that Baldwin was gone, it meant that it was Melisande and Folk's turn to rise. So, who exactly was Melisande? What did she look like? And what kind of person was she? That you're about to tell us. Sadly. Oh, shit. <laughs> the men of this time did not see fit to describe Melisande's appearance in any significant detail. Yeah, because their egos are bruised because she's now queen. We have no idea what she looked like. That's so annoying. Isn't it? Ugh, but She was probably fucking beautiful. From the power of deduction. Oh, all right. <laughs> we can kind of piece some things together. I'm just, so. I'm just picturing. I'm rewatching Game of Thrones, so I'm just picturing her as Melisandre. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, she's probably blonde. Okay. So, <laughs> and we'll get to that. So, <laughs> she was the daughter of a Frenchman and an Armenian woman, but the two sons she ends up having were said to have golden hair and light complexions. Mm -hmm. So most historians assume this meant that Melisande herself took after her father more than her mother and had European coloring. So she probably had golden hair and a light pink complexion. Hmm. She's also often described as looking like her father and her father is described as being beautiful. So we can yeah. assume she was pretty. Yeah. Our main source for Melisande is William of Tyr. William, <laughs> William was a chronicler that grew up in Jerusalem during Baldwin II and Melisande's reign. He famously supported Melisande while writing utterly scathing criticism about Melisande's younger, rebellious sister, Alice. Wow. Does he like Alice? Probably no, has a crush on no, Alice. He hates Alice. Probably has a crush, like a secret sandbox love. But that's our spoiler alert for a future episode. Ooh, okay. She's known as the rebel princess of Antioch. Oh my god, I love her already. <laughs> Melisande was observed as being a very capable politician, skilled debater, and loyal friend. 
William of Tyr suggests that Melisande superseded the expectations of her own sex. Because they were so fucking low to begin with. <laughs> if he has a crush on anyone, it's probably Melisande. But he couldn't describe her? Wanted to keep that for himself? <laughs> he even praised her more by saying she governed the kingdom of Jerusalem better than most men as well. Well, obviously. <laughs> That's why you all are scared when women come into power. <laughs> um, she's also apparently a very skilled horseback rider. Yes. Melisande was also deeply devout, and one of her most prized possessions survives to this day. It was an ornate prayer book with ivory bindings that were encrusted with gemstones of garnet and turquoise. It's very aggressive. It is. <laughs> I have a picture. Yes. <laughs> I'll show it at the end. Okay. These gems were inlaid all throughout the artwork of the book, often included in the place of the eyes of animals depicted in the images. How does the book close? You'll see. Okay. It, it's a very big, it's, it's, it's a psalter. It's like a huge book. That's ridiculous. It, I mean, they're rich and fine bored when they're not ridiculous. fighting so. <laughs> bored when they're not fighting oh illustrations in this book were created with the most expensive materials available including gold stitching and lapis lazuli crystals stuff <laughs> the book was created by as many as six different artists from around the known world blending greek frankish armenian anglo-saxon and islamic influences um so catherine Penjonis. Uh, she is the author of Queens of Jerusalem, The Women Who Dared to Rule, which is my source for this episode. Heck yeah. She observes that the book is a perfect representation of the multicultural Jerusalem that Melisande would have grown up with. Hmm. The book is known as Melisande's Psalter and is currently housed in the British Library. And if you want, you can go ask them to look at it. Why is it in the British Library? Why I don't is it? know. It's probably in the British Library to be kept safe from all the Insanity that's still going on in Jerusalem. Who knows? <laughs> Possibly. But you can go in and say, hey, can I look at it? And, like, you can, but you have to go into a specific room. Well, yeah, because they're probably, like, yeah. super oxygenated or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was evidently a gift from her husband, Folk, and possibly even gifted to her as a peace offering following a huge scandal. Oh, no. That nearly destroyed their marriage. Folk. Ugh. But more that on works. that in a bit. <laughs> Melisande and Folk had been crowned and anointed together in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, mm. <laughs> Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Wait, so they got re-coronated? Yeah. Coronated? Is that a, they is that a <laughs> They got re-crowned. Okay. Now they are the, the king and queen, so you gotta have a coronation to establish, like, hey, we are the ruling power. Now it's real. That first now one was a test run. Yeah, exactly. That the was first one practice. was, like, the rehearsal day. practice, Okay. <laughs> Melisande was also the first woman to be crowned as a queen regnant rather than a queen consort. Hell yeah. Power was something Melisande held on her own rather than being something derivative of her relationship to her husband. When the two initially came to power, it had been clearly stated in Baldwin's will that he wished his daughter to have equal power. Predictably, Folk being a man of European persuasion Stop. and hailing from a country that refused to recognize the inheritance rights of women in general, attempted to sideline Melisande. <laughs> She's like, oh my God, bitch, wait. <laughs> Folk publicly dismissed Melisande's authority, leaving no question to what he intended to do with the kingdom. <laughs> Melisande's signature is missing from charters during the earlier years of their reign, and Folk excluded her from issuing grants or granting titles to the local nobility. What a dick. Yeah, he's a dick. Ugh. Get ready. Ugh. Are you ready? Yes. Let's do this. <laughs> 
Folk's arrogance did not go unnoticed by the nobility, and it extended to the French soldiers he brought with him when he first arrived. He rewarded his retainers with wealth and offices at court that would have otherwise been obtained by the local baronage. That's annoying. It's very annoying. It's one way to piss people off. It's also stupid. Yeah. As we're going to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Melisande is said to have spent the earlier years of her reign dealing with more domestic issues. In addition to enduring the grief of losing her father, she was raising an infant son and looking after her two youngest sisters who were now orphaned. Yvette was only 10 at this point. And then there was also her sister, Alice. Having Wait, been... you said two younger sisters. Weren't there four of them? Yeah, one of them has a weird name. <laughs> okay, that's fair. All right. Sorry. That's fine. <laughs> well, I thought I included it, but hey, we're not going to talk about her that much. She's there. Okay. We'll come back to her. All right. <laughs> the big problem is Alice. Was Alice. Well, yeah, she's probably <laughs> mad that you gave her such like a plain Jane name. <laughs> Melisande, Yvette, Alice. Sorry if your name is Alice. And... It's a pretty name, but not, not in the context Hi. of Melisande. My cat's name is Alice. What? Allie. Oh, is that her name? Yeah, oh. after Alice in Wonderland. Oh, okay. How dare fair. you? It's a plain Jane name compared to <laughs> Melisande and Yvette. That's fair. <laughs> I am just stating facts. <laughs> I like the name Alice. <laughs> now, having been married off to the now dead Prince of Antioch, Oops. Alice had decided to seize power for herself, and the Principality of Antioch was an open rebellion. How did the prince die again? For the second time. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I want to say he died in battle. I can't remember exactly. I did start to read okay. her story, which is okay. why I was like, you know what? I'll come back to this because yeah, it's that's fair. That's worth fair. its own episode. All right. Um, speaking of which, it's worth its own episode and it's coming. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> For the purpose of this story, all we need to know is that the Outremer slash Crusader states were not technically a recognized country, but the Kingdom of Jerusalem generally had jurisdiction over the Crusader states. So when Alice is in rebellion, open rebellion, it's not just in Antioch. It's against Jerusalem. That's problematic, Alice. <laughs> Come on, Alice. Um, a little spoiler alert for that episode. The first time she rebels, she rebels against her father and he like brings his army to her city. <laughs> wow. She's yeah, like, she's, okay. she's fun. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come back. She's like, this is my bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you have more wealth and power, you're going to well, have she, bigger she, rebellions. Basically, she had a daughter named Constance. Guess who Constance marries? Who? Eleanor of Aquitaine's uncle. Hell yeah. Wait, the one that Eleanor of Aquitaine was supposedly sleeping with? Remember I told you he married a child to claim? Yeah, I know. I you didn't say it was great. It all comes full circle. Okay. <laughs> we'll get there. <sighs> Not this episode. Not this episode. Now, by claiming power for herself and being an open rebellion against the social fabric of the time alice was basically an open rebellion with melisande and folk this would have placed melisande in a very awkward position melisande is just like what the actual <laughs> fuck asshole <laughs> so here's the thing she likely would have sympathized with alice's desire to retain her independence because it's literally paralleling her right yeah. now but Melisande could also not have her or her husband's authority come to question yeah so, uh, awkward <laughs> Now, one of the biggest challenges to their early reign came from an internal source. Um, remember that I had mentioned a scandal. Oh, yes. Here we go. Mm -hmm. So that scandal came in the form of Hugh, the Count of Jaffa. Hugh. Hugh. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you have a Baldwin, you have a folk, and then you've got 
Hugh. Hugh. <laughs> so described by William of Tyr as being exceptionally handsome, Hugh was, without question, in respect to physical beauty, he had no equal in the kingdom. Ew. I think William was I also in love with already him. already hate him. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, It'll be interesting to see what you think of him. So. Okay. I just sort of hate him because everyone's describing him as the most beautiful. And I'm like, yo, get out. <laughs> so Hugh also happened to be Melisande's second cousin of an age with her and raised within her father's court. Having grown up as one of Melisande's closest companions and as an extended member of the family meant that Hugh had unique access to the queen. Naturally, oh, Folk was incredibly jealous of this relationship. Stop it. And who wouldn't be with William of Tyr singing praises to Hugh's beauty? Oh my god, he's in love with both of them. That's amazing. <laughs> now, we're told that in the wake of her father's death, Melisande was incredibly isolated. Hugh and Melisande were both married to people who were 15 to 20 years older than them and had few people of their own age around to keep them company. It would have been completely natural and understandable that they would have developed a bond. But as we all know, it doesn't have to be a goddamn sexual bond. A man and a woman spending <sighs> a friends. lot of time alone together obviously means an affair is occurring. Shame. <laughs> we saw that accusation thrown around in Rome. We saw it in France. We saw it in Scotland. We saw it in England. And the kingdom of Jerusalem is no different. Men and women behind closed doors. Oh my god. That's why I Can't love how we're all fighting with each other, but we're all exactly the same. Exactly. We have the same bullshit. Yep. We have the same religion, pretty much, and we're just all assholes. So here we are. So it didn't help that Hugh was a known philanderer either. Oh, come on. <laughs> but when scandal and rumor started to include the queen's name, yeah. that's when the trouble started. That's problematic. Men and kings were allowed to have their paramours, but with women it was different. <sighs> to suggest that Melisande had an affair was tantamount to treason, and it also brought the question of legitimacy of her infant son's parentage. That's where it gets dangerous. <sighs> <laughs> so here's the thing. To this day, nobody knows with any absolute certainty if Melisande and Hugh's relationship ever took on a sexual nature. Um, it's kind of one of those stories that makes for a great romance novel plot. Yeah. But Melisande was observed as being an especially astute politician. So I personally like to think that she would have been too cautious to engage in a sexual yeah. affair. Yeah. But they were very close. Yeah. And it's also the like childhood friend thing and like growing up and like yeah. potentially falling in love. You don't have to fall in love with your childhood friends. You can be friends and okay, not fall in love with them. But for people like me, that's like oh, my favorite. I know. It's a, it's a good trope, but yeah. <laughs> in I real like, life. <laughs> I like to think they had this like slow burning love, but it was like a forbidden of love of like, I cannot touch you, but I want to touch you. <laughs> it's like the, the painting in the on the ceiling. Yes. With the hands. <laughs> What's that called? What? Oh. Painting the... on the ceiling with the hands. The the creation painting that is God it. and that Adam is it. That is the <laughs> you think one. God and Adam. I'm just saying the way they're other? reaching. The way they're reaching, Rachel. <laughs> I'm totally looking at that as they like grew up as like besties yeah. and they fell yeah. in love. Yeah, now they're reaching, but they can't yeah. reach each other because they're now out, exactly. out of reach of each other. I'm just gonna say reach for one more time just for fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
even the misogynistic William of Tear discredits the rumors of his beloved queen. Um, <laughs> so in love. He was like, there is just rumors. Like, yes, they were friends, but it never went anywhere beyond that. Because Melisande was too good of a human for it. <laughs> but I can't describe the way she looks. <laughs> but Hugh. Oh. Exceptionally beautiful Hugh. Exceptionally beautiful. <laughs> um, what we do know is that basically the timing was convenient. Some historians suggest that Melisande's husband was the one to start the rumors of slander, um, basically to like ruin her reputation and push her off the throne. Yeah. This is the story a lot of contemporaries go with because it's a salacious tale that makes for better headlines. But we already know from this podcast that it's always more complicated and less sexy than that. Seriously. <laughs> Not only did Hugh represent the local nobility that resented folks' disrespect towards them, but he was also one of Folk's most open detractors. Melisande's husband had every reason to dislike him, and it helped that Hugh had other enemies closer to home. As mentioned, his wife was 20 years older than him with two adult sons of her own. When Hugh was married off to her, he inherited all her property. Because again, the patriarchy sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and so her two sons were naturally upset that their inheritance had been usurped. Folk was said to be the master manipulator behind the scenes, stirring up resentment in Hugh's two stepsons. Oh and at one point, the eldest son, Walter, ends up challenging Hugh to a trial by combat. Stop it. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> but not before publicly <clears throat> accusing Hugh of conspiring to kill the king. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, just imagine. Excuse me, sir. That was loud in left field. <laughs> Imagine this huge court scene and he's just like, my stepfather is an evil toad. And oh, yeah, he's also conspiring to oh, kill yeah. you. By the way, I challenge you to a trial by combat. Let's go. Everyone's like, wait, go back a minute. <laughs> so to make a long story short, Hugh agrees to the duel, but he never actually shows up. Oh, my God, Hugh, you can't do that. <laughs> and this seems to confirm the accusations made against him. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. Ugh. It looks really bad. He's probably like... drunk somewhere. <laughs> That's fair. He is a philanderer. <laughs> he flees Jerusalem mm. and uses this event um, basically as the catalyst to mount an official rebellion against Folk. Oh, okay. Well, that didn't help your... Specifically cause. Folk, though. Not Melisande. I know, but... <laughs> so here's where it gets more fun. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the Lords of Outremer fell into two camps at this point. Hugh led the group of lords that supported the hereditary rights of both Alice and Melisande and openly denounced Folk's attempt to rule Jerusalem without Melisande at his side. So basically, this group forming the rebellion is saying, you've set aside our rightful queen, mm -hmm. we're not okay with it, and we want to take you off the throne. Yes. And keep her in place. Fair. <laughs> Fair. The other group supported Folk's rule and basically recognized him as having, um, being the overlord of the whole of Outremer. Are these the assholes who got land from him and shit from him? Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd support him too. <laughs> so this also links to Alice because they're saying Alice needs to submit to him. Ew. Yeah. No. So Hugh becomes this larger than life figure. One who was loyal to his childhood friend and determined to defend her rights against an egotistical usurper. But he's also a bit of a wild card and reckless, often leaping headfirst without thinking the landing through. <laughs> Hugh knew it was only a matter of time before Folk sent troops to his county of Jaffa in retaliation. Fearing he did not have enough men to fend off the king of Jerusalem's forces, 
he reached out to the Egyptians of Ascalon for aid. So Ascalon is on the coast of this same area um, in the kingdom of Jerusalem. It's just north of the city of Jaffa. Sorry. It's just north of the city of Gaza and south of Jaffa. um, And it's in western Jerusalem. This proved to be an unpopular move within his own faction because the Ascalon Egyptians were Muslims, making them the sworn enemies of the Frankish population of Outremer. Crap. <laughs> yeah, so this is something that would occasionally happen. Even though the Christian faction is often fighting the Muslim faction, anytime there's infighting within the Christian faction, they'll suddenly go form a temporary <laughs> alliance oh, with the Muslim factions. Interesting. It is. It, I, I, I didn't know that. I was like, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Because <laughs> they do that all the time. <laughs> now, it did not help that when they marched with Hugh against Volk's troops, they also raided Christian territories along the way. Mm. So Hugh like, made a big boo-boo. Yeah. <laughs> so this understandably upset Hugh's own vassals. And when attempts failed to convince him that this alliance was doing more harm than good, his own vassals abandoned Hugh. And seeing that Hugh's vassals were abandoning him... The Ascalonians pulled suit and abandoned him, The too. Muslims are just like, mm, this seems problematic. We're going to go, too. We're going to go home. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know we might be a problem, but, like, we're going to go, too. <laughs> They're, like, kind of the problem, but, like, not fully the problem. No. <laughs> Hugh ends up getting captured in Jaffa not long after, and he's brought before the king for justice. Son of a bitch. So his fate would have likely been bleak, but Hugh was fortunate enough to have the queen on his side, and more than that... Melisande also had the church on her side. Oh, hell yeah. So the piety and generosity of Queen Melisande became one of her most distinguishing qualities. Having secured the support and trust of the church, they believed her claim that it was not the stories of her false infidelity that drove Hugh to rebel against the king. It was Hugh's desire to ensure that her own rights were not usurped. Yeah. The patriarch of Jerusalem... Um, So when you hear us talk about the patriarch on this podcast, think of him as being kind of like a bishop um, in the Roman Catholic Church, but he's he's like this the most powerful church figure in Jerusalem. He stepped in on Melisande's behalf to ensure that Hugh would not be executed outright. Hugh's actions could not go completely unpunished, but Melisande's interference reduced his sentence to three years of exile. This story might have had a happier ending had Hugh been allowed to journey onto his exile destination of Italy undisturbed. But, as we know, <laughs> things never go as planned. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So, Hugh had managed to secure a ship for himself and spent the hours leading up to his departure playing dice on a busy street filled with pilgrims, traders, and crusaders meandering about when an errant knight appeared and attacked Hugh completely unprovoked. That's rude. The knight was a man of zero acclaim out of Brittany, which is uh, like an area near France. Mm-hmm. And he stabs Hugh with his sword several times Whoa. in broad daylight before stealing away through the crowd. Well, that's rude. I'm going to go if he was hired by someone. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be the only one thinking yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so although Hugh survived the initial attack, the city was utterly outraged. The era of the... Oh, cru- he survived? He... Barely. Oh, okay. He, his... So... He, Usually what happens is if you get attacked in this era, 
it's usually not the attack itself that will it's kill you. It's the infection you. and everything else. It's yeah. the infection. Yeah. yeah. So initially, yeah, he survives. Well, I mean, getting stabbed by a sword kind of <laughs> does make it uh, closer to death than yeah. otherwise. <laughs> and it was several times. Yeah. So the thing was... He missed all the good organs. <laughs> the era of the Crusaders was one of chivalry. Men might have been prone to bloodlust, but it was not the sort of thing conducted in the shadows. Yeah, and not by a knight. <laughs> exactly. If you had a complaint, you took it to the face of your opponent and you challenged him to defend himself. Men were not assassinated in the shadows. Where do they think we are? Renaissance France? Right? Like, come on. <laughs> this is not Assassin's Creed. <laughs> this is not Assassin's Creed. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> The prevailing assumption of the time is that King Folk hired this knight to attack Hugh and then be rid of him once and for all. Though Folk would go to great lengths to fervently deny the accusations. He struggled enough with the distrust of the nobility and knew that he would not survive such a scandal. Yeah, no. <laughs> when the knight was captured, he suffered as gruesome a medieval fate as you can get. Uh -oh. Folk decreed that anything that could be cut off... <gasps> would be cut off ouch save for his tongue because he didn't want people think he was silencing him. okay every smart bastard other appendage was cut off yum <laughs> that's one word for it <laughs> can you imagine if that was someone he hired and the guy's like what the fuck that's how i like to imagine it oh, like this is why you don't trust people well like this people. is why you don't hire you don't <laughs> carry out the king's hey you want to kill this guy no because you're gonna kill me later yeah <laughs> Yeah. Hugh's fate was not much better. Although he survived the initial attack, his wounds festered, and the healing process took a lot out of him. By the time he got to Italy, he fell into a deep depression, and he died not long after. Oh, wow. Now, whether it was because his wounds never fully healed, his pride was so severely wounded by the events that just occurred, or his heart was broken from this prolonged separation from Melisande is anyone's best guess. In the end... It was the straw that finally broke the camel's back. By who? <laughs> Queen Melisande had been a picture of self-restraint and temperance. Even though she would have been outraged by her husband's treatment, not only of her, but of their vassals, she was said to have kept her rage in check. That all changed after Hugh's death. Oh, shit. <laughs> She's like, oh my god, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> now, when Folk and Melisande initially came to the throne... Melisande kept up the appearance of the dutiful wife, mother, and pious queen that was commonplace during the medieval era. It's been suggested that she may have secretly participated in Hugh's rebellion, possibly by helping him fund it and pass him intel, but she never publicly abandoned her husband. And now it's all about to change. <laughs> the death of Hugh saw the birth of a new Melisande. This one was furious and terrifying. She was a tempest on the sea, whipping the waves into a fury that threatened to drown and devastate anyone that got in her way. Oh, yes. She's like in the bathroom dying her hair black. She's like, yes. <laughs> yeah, she's entering her villain era. <laughs> the switch seemed to happen overnight. One moment, Melisande was quietly outraged but docile. The next, she scared half the court of Jerusalem, <laughs> namely folks' retainers, into running away from court and her fury. Yes. These men were said to be terrified that the assassination attempt made against Hugh would be repeated against them and thus avoided any public gatherings. The king himself was also terrified, said oh to have God. carefully avoided being alone with his wife 
or any of her supporters without carrying at least a dagger or a sword to protect himself. Imagine he's like, they're like just hanging out and then everyone like court's done and everyone's leaving. He's like, please stay. No, no, He's like, you know what? I'm going to go. You're not, don't leave. You know what? I need to talk to you. Come here. (laughs) William of Tyr wrote the following. Oh no. From that time, all who incited the king to wrath fell under the displeasure of Queen Melisande and were forced to take diligent measures for their safety. It was not safe for these informers to come into her presence. Even the king found that no place was entirely safe among the kindred and partisans of the queen. All, like, but, like, you you don't just go from, like, not being afraid of her, just suddenly afraid of her without something happening. Like, so what did she do that made she, everyone scared? I don't know. She likely probably, she was known for having a temper. So she yeah. probably likely yelled at him and she probably just flat out said, like, I will kill you. Yeah. Like, you have fucked everything up. Yeah. Because it's not just that he was dead. It's like half of their nobility is against them. She's yeah. like, no, you've done too much. Everything's gonna you fall apart. You sit the fuck down, yeah. or I'll sit you down. It'll hurt. I like to think of it as like Agrippina dragging Nero into the like closeted room, and nobody knows what happened. Yeah. But he comes out like with, with his tail between his legs. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's what this. happens. I love it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Folk had essentially overplayed his hand from the start, attempting to replace all the local nobility and upend the entire feudal structure of Jerusalem Jesus. by swapping in his own retainers and key political positions. They should not. <laughs> be allowed to happen by just one man's doing like there should be things in place sorry <laughs> melisande and hugh became the figureheads of resentment against the nobility who did not like being usurped by foreigners um the irony is that melisande's father and basically these first crusader heroes mm-hmm. have established their own role by doing just that yeah, yeah they were also outsiders yeah <laughs> but people have short memories yes so. or they just don't care to remember <laughs> Once Melisande unleashed her wrath and openly proclaimed her outrage at the insult to her honor and the way her people were being treated, she gave license to her followers to do the same without fear of repercussion. Whoa. So that's what she did. She was like, you know what? If something happens to you, I didn't see it. Oof. Yep. (laughs) Folk committed the cardinal sin of forgetting that Melisande was the one with the blood tie to Jerusalem. Yeah. If anyone's rule was derivated from anyone else, it was his rule coming from her. Hmm. We're told that the king eventually came around to his senses and soon came groveling at Melisande's feet, begging for her forgiveness. It took the intervention of the Patriarch of Jerusalem once more to even get Melisande to consider a reconciliation. He's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's take a <laughs> breath, take a step back. <laughs> Do some yoga, I don't know. <laughs> When the two did eventually reconcile, Folk was a changed man. Oh my god. From that day forth. His Folk, eyes were downcast on the floor always. <laughs> Folk was the dutiful, obedient husband. Oh boy, has he been whipped never into submission. Spoke never again after this point, spoke publicly against Melisande. He made ah. no attempt to circumvent her will or oh act in god. any way that would incite her wrath again. Oh, that is so this makes me happy. So happy. <laughs> I know when I was reading it, I was just like, oh. <laughs> oh so one final note on Melisande's anger. During her father's reign, several laws had been created to specifically punish women found guilty of adultery. What? The punishment for this crime was grievous. Female adulterers were 
could expect to have their nostrils slit. What? Why? Or their noses completely removed. Because adultery is a huge sin in the Bible, especially for women. Ugh. Because of misogyny, cat. That's why. <laughs> Disgusting. Yeah, but like, why the nose? What? Because women's noses are beautiful. It's basically to to taint their beauty. Ugh. Ugh. I, uh, yeah. Ugh. Ugh. The patriarchy sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so when, every male can run around with his dick mm, out. It's yeah. fine. It's really fine. <laughs> so when folk accuse Melisande of adultery. He placed her in a very real physical danger. Yeah. So we can imagine that her wrath was an ancient wrath inherited by the women who had suffered at the hands of barbaric men before them. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, you know what, asshole? That's, I've been nice until now. That's what I imagine. I honestly oh, imagine it. she's literally like finally snapped in all yeah. of the rage of the women before her. Just like she inherited. Yeah. It. Yeah. So. Yeah. After the rebellion was settled, Melisande and Folk were said to have developed a stronger working partnership. The ivory inlaid prayer book was the peace offering that brought them back together. A few He's years, just like, mm, here, babe, I got you something. It's like, I know you like pretty embroidered Look, it's shiny books. and it'll distract you from me. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if oh. your boyfriend or husband really pissed you off and came with like a beautiful looking book. Don't be mad. I'm going to take the book for myself. Don't still be mad at you. <laughs> A few years later, a second son was born to the king and queen, and his name was Baldwin Amalric. All right. What the fuck? You had that name and you chose Baldwin first? Oh, God. Another famous crusader king. Interesting. Who was linked to another difficult damsel. (laughs) Anyway, we haven't covered her yet, but we will. (laughs) So with the king and queen now on the same page, a newfound calm fell over the kingdom of Jerusalem. And one of the things Melisande would go on to be known for was her patronage of various art and religious works around the city. She was also responsible for settling her two youngest sisters. Arranging marriages was usually the responsibility of the parents, but with Baldwin and Morphia having already passed to the next world, it fell to Melisande to sort her sisters out. Wait, when did Morphia die? Remember, Morphia died years and years ago, and Baldwin refused to remarry. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Nope, we're there. Sorry. Yeah, they're both dead. <laughs> Rip. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Oh, I did name her sister. <laughs> so Melisande proved to be as politically astute as her father had been, securing a marriage for her third sister, Hodierna. That's why I haven't been saying it because it's hard. Hodierna? Sure. So she's <laughs> married off to Count Raymond of Tripoli. And this placed Hodierna as the Countess of Tripoli and in one of the most important positions in the Crusader states that a woman could occupy. Oh, cool. Melisande had a harder time securing a marriage for her younger sister, Yvette. Some historians suggest that Melisande didn't even bother with the effort. Because um, as we talked <laughs> That's about... So sad. I know. Well, Aww. it's kind of sad, but I also think she was deliberate. So yeah. there is... The idea and the knowledge that, you know, Yvette having been a hostage of the enemy since she was five, a lot of people would have said she was likely assaulted. So yeah. the gross thing of, oh, she's been sullied. Ugh. Yeah. Stop. Yes. So Melisande endeavored to go a different route with her younger sister. Yvette ended up joining the convent of St. Anne when she was a child, and Melisande was determined to ensure that her youngest sister would still be given a role suitable to her rank and station in life. 
When she officially came into her power in Jerusalem, Melisande set out to construct a new convent just outside of Jerusalem. The convent was dedicated to St. Lazarus, and the intention was to have Yvette named as the abbess and Ooh. rule over the convent. Fun. Mm -hmm. Good for her. So Melisande could not just name her own sister outright, because that would be nepotism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because no one else has done it before her. <laughs> so she installed an elderly nun as the abbess, knowing she would not be able to live her tenor Aww. for very long. <laughs> She's very smart. She's like, how sick are you? <laughs> and predictably... The nun died not long after, and the rest of the nuns at the convent dutifully elected Yvette on their own as the new abbess. On their own. On their own. Quote, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> Melisande is just standing there like, who are you going like, to vote for, do you think? This is your decision, lady. This is your decision. This is your decision, <laughs> glancing at yeah, Yvette. Angry dagger glares, <laughs> and then head tilt to Yvette. <laughs> So Melisande went on to become the convent's most prominent patron, and she gifted wealth, art, and land to the convent to ensure it would become wealthier and more prominent than any other monastery, convent, or church in the immediate vicinity. Oh, no. <laughs> and she did not have to worry about sharing her power with a man either, she being Yvette. Yeah. By gifting her sister the convent of St. Lazarus, Melisande made sure Yvette was more powerful than most secular lords that would have attended court in Jerusalem. Heck yeah. And the proximity of the convent meant that Melisande could visit with her sister frequently. <laughs> Yvette's life had started out very harrowing, with the potential of descending into a horror story filled with trauma and abuse. Melisande ensured that her sister got a happy ending. Yvette would rule as St. Lazarus's abbess for the rest of her life, and she would outlive all of her sisters. Aw, yay! This is not the last we are going to hear of Yvette. She will come back in another story later uh, on. Yes. Yeah. Melisande's patronage of St. Lazarus was likely not entirely selfless. It was the habit of the day to believe that one's immortal soul and place in heaven was dependent on their contributions to the church. That is why I hate mm -hmm. the church. <laughs> And it was equally likely that Melisande wanted to leave a monument to her legacy as so many kings and queens before her had done. Mm -hmm. Jerusalem continued to flourish under the reign of Melisande and Falk, and it seems that after having survived such a rocky start to the first couple of years of their marriage and reign, Melisande and Falk began to settle into a stable and even affectionate marriage. The later years of their reign show the couple holding court together and signing charters together as well. In time, the two would become the very image and model for marriage unity that would have been propagated by Christian values. All right, all right. But alas, not yeah. all good things can last. Of course not. <laughs> so while visiting the city of Acre in the north of their kingdom, Melisande decided to go for a ride outside the city, wishing for a change of scenery and likely desiring to get away from the noxious smell that permeated so many <laughs> bustling medieval cities. Yeah. Because they uh, lacked proper sewage systems yeah. and basic hygiene practices. Yeah. Improper plumbing kind of does not yeah. help you at all. Falk, being the ever-dutiful and obedient husband, now decided to accompany his wife on the ride, taking advantage of an opportunity of sport and inviting his retinue along to join them. She's like, I want it quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's said that a hare eventually popped out of a trench during their ride, and the king decided to show off his prowess and impress his wife by chasing after the hare at full speed. Are you kidding me? To take down the dastardly creature. It's a fucking hare. With a friggin' lance, no less. It's a friggin' hare. Get off your horse and run after it. <laughs> oh my 
That's like the guys who like, like in high school, the guys who would like try to race off in their sports cars and almost crash their sports cars. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're dumb. Well, <laughs> oh my god, he almost he crashed his horse. But apparently, <laughs> Hulk drove his horse a touch too hard, and the poor destrier panicked and bucked, tossing Folk off its back. Ugh. Folk landed headfirst on the ground, and a few seconds later, his saddle fell on top of him, Ouch. striking him in the head. Ooh, shit, that's problematic. The blow... Why did his saddle fall off? Who saddled the fucking horse? That's a good question. Ooh. <laughs> the blow was apparent. This isn't, you know, France, though, so... No assassination attempts, uh, likely. Yeah. No, Catherine de' Medici is not here. So. Yeah. <laughs> the blow was apparently so severe that chroniclers wrote of seeing both blood and brain matter smattered across the rack. The saddles are fucking heavy. <laughs> yes. When Melisande arrived at the scene, she gave a performance of hysterical grief and devastation to rival that of Cleopatra when she found Mark Antony dying from a self-inflicted sword wound. Oops. Melisande tore her hair to pieces, wailed before a devastated public, and fell to the ground beside her dying husband, completely and utterly inconsolable. I feel like Melisande was like, cut his saddle <laughs> just right, and then like went over and was like talking to the hair. She's like, hey, I need you to pop out right at this second. All right. He's not going to hurt you. He's retarded. <laughs> if she was Catherine de Medici, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but who knows? Folk would live for three more days without waking up before finally succumbing to his wounds on November 10th, 1143. The kingdom of Jerusalem was treated to a mourning procession that took him through the city of Jerusalem before he was laid to rest at his final resting place in the chapel of Adam in the church of the Holy Sepulchre. I think I'm saying that right. Sure. Sepulchre. <laughs> Melisande and Folk had reigned as queen and king of Jerusalem for 12 years. What started as a tumultuous marriage that threatened to tear Jerusalem apart settled into a successful working relationship that saw the kingdom thrive and flourish. Melisande now found herself in a unique position. The next king in line to the throne was their 13-year-old son, Baldwin. Yeah, but she technically shares power with him. Although the two technically shared equal rule, according to the will drafted by her father, Baldwin was still a child that had not yet reached his majority. And so... Queen Melisande of Jerusalem was now officially the most powerful sovereign in the holiest city of all Christendom. Hell yes. As a queen regnant, her position as queen was not dissolved by her husband's death. She would not be supplanted by her son as the queen mother the way most queen consorts would have in the past. The two would rule equally in theory, but only after her son came of age. For now, Melisande was the supreme and singular ruler of Jerusalem. Fuck yeah. She is 38 years old. Oh my god. <laughs> and if you would like to hear the conclusion to Melisande's story, you have to come back for part two. Yes! I didn't know this was a two-parter! It is a two-parter! <laughs> oh, yes! Oh, man. oh yeah. 13-year-old boy becoming king after being told you are the king of the holiest city in the world. Oops. What could possibly go wrong <laughs> no, there? absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Part one. Part what one. a freaking story. Right? Shit. Ugh. I just love the turn where she's like, you know what, asshole? I'm done. Because <laughs> we all know most women have hit that point at some time in the reach. So if you look up um, most powerful queens of the medieval era, she always ends up in the like 
top 10, if not top five. Yes. Because of the grip she had on Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> random question time. Random question time. So, our random question is, if you were to have some kind of tomb, um, where would it be and what would it look like if you were like this amazing queen that died and wanted to have a legacy for yourself? You go first. <laughs> I, I don't know. So, I'm thinking... I probably would want like a uh, one of the boroughs in Ireland that's basically like the fairy mounds. Yeah, like an underground tomb yeah. and I would I would want part of it to have access so you could come and venerate me. No, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just I think I would want it full of like Beaut I basically want like a beautiful garden maintained inside the burial mound. Um it would look very innocuous on the outside, like you wouldn't even know. That would have to be there. interesting plant life too to la to survive yeah. in the dark. It'd probably be like mushrooms yeah. and yeah, maybe there's like flowers on the outside. Um the inside of my tomb would probably also be pretty simple. Like maybe my most precious jewels taken with me. Definitely some books that I would want with me in the afterlife. Oh, yes. um, yeah, I wouldn't be mummified. I would just eventually turn to dust in a tomb. But yeah, I would want it to be like a little creepy, but like a yeah. little, little whimsical. So, I yeah. feel like I'd want mine to be like somewhere where you'd have to like make it a point to find it mm -hmm. um but it's like that that um that legend or that like mm -hmm. you know where people challenge each other to go find like how nobody's tomb. ever to this day found cleopatra's tomb. exactly like yeah. and then if you're if you find it you're like one of the lucky ones lucky enough to find it and don't tell anyone yeah there's a curse on you yes. if you tell anyone <laughs> but i would want like stonework like mm -hmm. um like the what's it called it's in scotland what are they called stonehenge um okay like i'd want stonework like that and then fairy lights everywhere because I would want it to be like the yes. forest. <laughs> yeah. And it would be overrun by cats. Of course. Feral cats. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like, they're going to follow you to make sure you don't tell Yeah. Anybody. And like, it, when you go to my tomb at night, like, all you see is the, the cat eyes. The cat eyes. Yes. That would be fun. And the fairy lights. Yes. And then I would definitely want like moss everywhere and just, I would want it to be very natural. And then, like, yeah, but like, obviously, a place for like the things that but I want. But more outside, like, yeah. But I think I'd want my body to be burned first, and like, keep it. Someone's outside talking. Keep it in, like, yeah. uh, keep my ashes in like a very ornate, like, urn. Interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking more on mine. I think I would definitely want like tree roots to just be growing yeah. throughout the tomb too and then they're like at night it's just like fireflies that kind of yes. light up the area but other than that it's like completely dark hell yeah you have to like take a torch to find my tomb I love it. yeah i love it i'm imagining like glowing mushrooms and i want like nifty like runes and symbols everywhere too yes. like a, from yeah. all religions from that'd all be, religions i wouldn't cool. just do one yeah one all would be welcome as long yeah. as they were respectful yeah. If you're not respectful, my cats are going to kill you. <laughs> I like that. I like that, like, yours has this legend to it, and yes. you will be cursed if yeah. you talk that yeah, you yeah. found it. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, well, you have been listening to Difficult Damsels. Uh, really quick, I want to give um, 
a huge thank you and a shout out to my friend. He helped me um, with the program that I used to help make the theme song for this podcast. Yay. He has his own podcast. I will call him M because that's what he's going by <laughs> on the podcast. All right. It is called Daydream. And it's basically a smut podcast. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so he's reading his fantasies out. And I figure her demographic is like 80% women. Yeah. So surely so some listen. of you would enjoy it. It's exclusively on Spotify and Acre. Acre. Anchor. Anchor. Um, so go listen. Hell yeah. Did you say what it was called? It's called Daydream. Oh, yeah, you did. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so go listen. And again, um, thank you, M, for your help. I thank appreciate you. it. We finally have a theme song. Swing, swing. Swing, swing. <laughs> um, you can help our podcast, as always, by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. And we also have a subscription program now as well. So if you would like to help us monetarily, if you have the money for it, you can donate 99 cents, $4.99, or $9.99 a month. Whatever your wallet will allow, we would appreciate it. The as link long as you keep coming back to listen, yes. we'll still be happy. <laughs> um, a link to that subscription program is in the show notes. Hell yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys, we're both tired. <laughs> what? You want to do the email and social media part? No. No, I do not. You can reach us at <laughs> difficult.damsels at gmail.com. And then we're also on is it social medias literally just facebook and twitter um you mean instagram shit yeah <laughs> why did i say twitter i'm not even on twitter i'm not either <laughs> i don't tweet like um, i hope we're not there <laughs> yeah no <laughs> um that difficult damsels. damsels the podcast, the podcast. threw me off i had to do the email and <laughs> sorry oh my god so much we have a to lot sing. like weed right now and i'm like not being focused <laughs> it's dense. yeah i know um but yeah as oh. always stay difficult. stay difficult welcome to the new year Woo. This was episode 50, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just noticed. <laughs> Woo! <laughs>